The committee will come to order. This hearing of the Subcommittee of the State Department and USAID Management, International Operations, and Bilateral International Development, only in Washington can we come up with names like that, um, is titled State Department and USAID Management Challenges and Opportunities for the Next Administration. I'd like to begin by welcoming our, our distinguished guests uh, and witnesses, uh, Inspector General of the State Department and Broadcasting Board of Governors, Steve Linick, and Inspector General of the U.S. Agency for International Development, USAID, and Calvarese Bar. Welcome. Thank you both so much for taking your time today and to be back before us, and welcome back. The Inspector Generals before us here today are charged with evaluating and assessing state and USAID's programs and operations and making recommendations to strengthen their integrity, effectiveness, and accountability. As such, the Inspectors General are dedicated to detecting and pre preventing waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement. As we move forward into a new administration which will have new leadership and fresh ideas, I wanted to take the opportunity to bring you up uh, to, to really focus, to visit with us again, to focus again on the management piece of this mandate. We understand that you've both put out uh, recent reports on major, on major management and performance challenges for each of your respective agencies, and these contain key re recommendations for what the next administration should prioritize. We have a lot of ground we can cover today, but there are some core things you've identified as challenges that I want to mention first. Protecting our people and facilities overseas, number one. Number two, managing posts and programs in conflict, in conflict areas. Number three, information, information security and management. Number four, oversight of contracts and grants. And lastly, meeting transparency and reporting requirements. We got a lot to do today uh, if we cover all of that. These challenges impact our ability to operate in conflict zones, keep those serving our nation safe, ensure that our aid is doing what it's intended, and that congressionally mandated transparency requirements are being met, and to protect the integrity of the IT systems these agencies rely on. We look forward to and welcome your suggestions on how these challenges should be addressed by state and USAID and how the incoming Trump administration should prioritize and tackle these issues. Before we get started, I'd also like to welcome back our uh, ranking member today, Senator Kane. Senator Kane has been a uh, stalwart uh, on the Foreign Relations Committee in, in, in reaching bipartisan consensus here. I respect him greatly and appreciate his leadership, mentoring, and uh, and participation. And with that, I'd like to thank and recognize our ranking member, Senator Tim Kaine. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and I, I echo those comments. It's been a treat to be the ranking member on this subcommittee with you for two years and to be here at this last meeting of our subcommittee. Um, and it is a very important topic, and I welcome both of you and thank you for your service. I understand, uh, Mr. Linick, you're feeling a little under the weather today, and so we will we, we we won't stint on our tough questions, but we will we will understand if the answers are abbreviated. Um, IGs have a difficult mission, challenging mission, important mission, regardless what agencies they serve. Um, but given the overseas nature of the work that is done in USAID and state, uh, the challenges that you each face in your roles, I think, are uh, are significantly advanced. And I thank you for the good work that you do. Uh, this is meant to, the uh, hearing is meant to dig into your recent reports and talk about performance and management challenges for state and USAID as we move into the next administration. Um, obviously, top priority is responsibly spending taxpayer dollars, and that's a key function of what the IGs are charged with as we continue to expand our presence around the globe, uh, and we have expanded it greatly in the last 15 years. Uh, many programs can be susceptible to fraud, waste, abuse, 
uh, if not uh, just poor implementation challenges, and we see that. I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and we deal with the same issue there with DOD all the time, and this is, uh, I know, something that you focus significantly on. Um, Senator Purdue mentioned an important piece to what we do is trying to have performance and management metrics. This is one of the reasons that he and I get along so well. I think we, we're into the management by data, management by results. Uh, if you don't measure, you don't really know how you're doing, but you have to measure the right things to give your organizations the right incentives to be effective, and we want to talk about that. Um, managing these overseas uh, complexes, managing the safety of our folks overseas, having the right tools in place for that are critically important. Um, and as we've concluded an election where there's been a lot of discussion about uh, cyber hacking of institutions, even electoral institutions, and state has been the subject of cyber hacks in the past, knowing uh, what, we, what we ought to be doing to protect our infrastructure, cyber infrastructure is a, is a key interest that I think we both share and I know that you'll address. So I'm eager for your recommendations. I appreciate your service and glad that we're doing this hearing this morning. Thanks, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Kane. Uh, we'll introduce our witnesses now. I'd ask you to keep your uh, opening remarks to five minutes, of course, and your written testimony will be submitted in the record. First, we have the Honorable Steve Linick, Inspector General of the U.S. Department of State, Broadcasting Board of Governors. Mr. Linick began his tenure as Inspector General for the State Department in September 2013. Prior to his appointment, he served for three years as first Inspector General of the Federal Housing Agency. Mr. Linick is an assistant U.S. attorney in California and Virginia. He also served as both executive director of the Department of Justice's National Procurement Fraud Task Force and deputy chief of its fraud section, Criminal Division. During his tenure at the DOJ, he supervised and participated in white-collar criminal fraud cases involving, among other things, corruption and contract fraud against the U.S. in Iraq and Afghanistan. In his current capacity, Inspector General Linick is a senior official responsible for audits, inspections, evaluations, investigations, and other law enforcement efforts to combat fraud, waste, and abuse within or affecting the operations of the Department of State and Broadcasting Board of Governors. Mr. Linick, welcome. Thank you, uh, and I apologize for my voice, but uh, uh, it's, I'm delighted to testify before you today and talk about the, uh, the work of the Office of Inspector General for the Department of State. Um, so I'd like to thank you uh, for the opportunity. I also want to thank this committee for its interest in and support of our work, in particular for sponsoring the legislation intended to expand our hiring authority and to obtain information regarding misconduct by senior department personnel. Uh, this legislation is, is critical to our work, uh, and we really appreciate that. By way of background, um, our office oversees the operations and programs of the State Department and the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which include more than 70,000 employees and over 270 overseas missions and domestic entities. And aside from the sheer breadth of the work we have to oversee, the Department of State's OIG is unique because unlike other inspectors general, we are statutorily required to inspect all overseas posts and bureaus in the department. So let me turn to some of the more important aspects of our recent work. First, as I testified previously, one of our top priorities is helping uh, to protect the people who work for the department around the world. And although the department has continued to make improvements in overseas safety and security over the last 18 months, challenges still remain. And through our inspections and our audits, we continue to find deficiencies that put personnel at risk. And since I last testified, we've particularly focused on health and safety issues overseas, emergency action plans, and maintaining physical security at overseas posts. Second, the security of information system remains a focus. The department has spent a substantial amount of money over the past few years 
but we are still concerned about the protection of the department's IT infrastructure. For example, in recent months, we've reported significant weaknesses in the department's cybersecurity incident response program. At the same time, I am pleased to report one important area of improvement, and that is our own IT systems. When I last testified here, I described our IT network as a major challenge. At the time, our network was connected to the department systems uh, and vulnerabilities in the department's unclassified network directly affected our own system. In August, we migrated to our own independent IT system. Finally, the department does face continuing challenges managing contracts and grants. To date, we've issued numerous reports and management assistance reports related to these topics and we've opened numerous investigations on contract and procurement fraud. And we're concentrating our efforts on the department's weaknesses in managing high value critical contracts, including those in the conflict zones. I now turn to our initiatives. When I testified last time, I described several new initiatives. These programs are no longer new, but they are now an integral part of our day-to-day -day work processes. We've continued to use management assistance reports and management alerts to bring specific issues to the attention of senior management quickly without waiting for the conclusion of longer-term audits and inspections. Second, our Office of Evaluations and Special Projects, which was established in 2014, is now well established and continues to focus on systemic issues, special assignments, and whistleblower protections. And finally, our work in connection with overseas contingency operations is well integrated into our overall mission and our staff is working closely with DOD and USAID OIGs to oversee those operations. Next, I'd like to address our primary ongoing challenge, um, which is uh, what I discussed the last time I testified before you. Um, unlike other IGs, our office is not consistently given the opportunity to investigate allegations of criminal or serious administrative misconduct by the department's employees. Department components, including the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, are not required to notify us of allegations that come to their attention. Accordingly, we cannot undertake effective independent assessments and investigations of these matters as envisioned by the Inspector General Act. We've been negotiating with the department to address these limitations on our ability to conduct oversight for about two years, but the problem persists. Clearly, your legislation is needed to address this serious limitation. And I welcome your continued support as this Congress ends and the new one begins. Finally, I'd like to discuss the significant impact of our work. In my written testimony, I included some financial metrics that demonstrate the way we help uh, return money to the American taxpayers. But these measurements don't fully reflect our most critically important work, which is helping to safeguard the lives of people who work in or visit our pros abroad and protecting the department's information, reputation, and the integrity of program. Chairman Perdue, Ranking Member Kane, I want to thank you for this opportunity again. And I want to emphasize that our accomplishments are a credit to the talented and committed staff that I've had the privilege to lead. And I want to publicly thank them for their relentless pursuit of excellence. I look forward to your questions. Thank you, Mr. Linick. Now we'll turn to Ms. Calvarese Barr. Previously, Mrs. Calvarese Barr served as Deputy Inspector General at the U.S. Department of Transportation. She also spent 25 years at the U.S. Government Accountability Office, where she served as Director of the Acquisition and Sourcing Management Team, and earlier worked overseas to evaluate defense, national security, and foreign disaster assistance programs. In her role as USAID Inspector General, Ms. Calvarese Barr oversees more than $20 billion in U.S. foreign assistance and development programs worldwide. I think you were just uh, confirmed before this committee just a little over a year ago. So we welcome your comments today and thank you for coming again.
Chairman Perdue, Ranking Member Kane, and members of the subcommittee. Thank you for inviting me to take part in this important hearing. As you know, I'm, I'm charged with overseeing up to $15 billion spent annually on foreign assistance provided by USAID, MCC, USADF, IAF, and OPIC. Today I will focus on the major management challenges USAID faces in carrying out its missions, its mission, and the reforms my office has taken to create a model OIG. We identified five USAID challenges that need particular attention in fiscal year 2017. These challenges stem from the inherent complexities in coordinating and implementing foreign assistance, poor project design, monitoring, and a lack of capacity to execute and oversee USAID-funded projects, and weak internal controls. Managing the complexities of working in areas beset by conflict, instability, or natural disaster is a long-standing challenge for USAID. According to the agency, these environments require flexible responses. We agree that some flexibility is needed to adapt to country contexts, but it must be tempered with discipline. Our investigations related to responses in Syria and other countries expose fraud schemes involving collusion, product substitution, inflated billing, and false claims. These schemes demonstrate the extent to which ad hoc approaches can leave USAID programs vulnerable to abuse and raise serious concerns about implementers' contracting processes and USAID's oversight. Reconciling priorities and operations that involve multiple U.S. agencies also present significant challenges. Our work in Pakistan and the Middle East found that USAID employees often struggle to balance USAID's development priorities with other agencies' aims. In response, USAID's administrator recently engaged State Department leadership to discuss solutions. Another challenge relates to program design and monitoring. Poor design has limited the impact of USAID projects or disrupted them before they began. Monitoring has been constrained by unreliable data, as well as insuff insufficient guidance, staffing shortages, and a lack of employee training. Such weaknesses derailed USAID's plans to use a multi-tiered approach to monitor activities in Afghanistan. Ultimately, only one of 127 awards made between 2013 and 14 used multi-tiered monitoring. Program sustainability also remains a challenge, particularly as it relates to securing host country commitment and assessing local capacity. For example, a project in Haiti lacked a plan to transfer responsibility for paying health care workers' salaries at 80, at 80 facilities after USAID's role ended and the Haitian government could not pay them. In addition, five U.S.-funded roads in the West Bank are deteriorating because the Palestinian Authority did not allocate funds to support road maintenance. Finally, long-standing internal control weaknesses have limited USAID's ability to meet federal financial management requirements, including reconciling transactions between USAID and other agencies. Complying with the government's complex information security requirements has also proved challenging. While USAID has made great strides in implementing FISMA and removing significant deficiencies, concerns remain about the CIO's ability to exercise appropriate authority and the independence of USAID's FISMA compliance reviews. To provide the oversight needed to help USAID address these complex challenges, I have seized opportunities to improve our own operations. 
It begins with a vision for how we scope our work and how we execute that work. Moving away from auditing and investigating individual programs and projects to targeting weaknesses that cut across all the entities that we oversee. This cross-cutting work will provide solutions that link Washington-based strategies to field-level implementation. To better position my staff to carry out this work, I've initiated a number of reforms. First, I added more rigor to how we prioritize our work. Second, I called for matrix teams comprised of audit, investigations, and technical staff from headquarters and the field and consolidated 11 overseas offices into four regional hubs. Third, I've taken steps to revitalize our workforce by recruiting new leaders, elevating performance standards, setting expectations for inclusivity and leadership, and identifying the training and resources all staff need to succeed. Finally, I've solidified our independence by establishing a cooperation memo with the USAID Administrator to formalize OIG's authority. We are also working to reclaim responsibility for closing out our recommendations. OIG remains committed to providing reliable and meaningful oversight and ensuring that we, as well as entities we oversee, achieve the highest return on taxpayer dollars. Given the risks in providing foreign assistance, this is no easy task, but it makes our work and this subcommittee's sustained interest critical to ensure we get it right. This concludes my prepared statement. I'm happy to take any questions you might have. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. calvarese Barn. Thank you both for your, your statements and uh, for your submission to the record. We'll start a questioning today, and in just a minute of time, we, we do have a Democratic caucus uh, meeting at 11.15, and uh, Senator Kane will probably have to excuse himself. If I have another question or two, we'll, we'll continue to do that. We're allowed to do that, but we, I think we should be able to, to manage the questions in that time. We'll start with uh, Ranking Member Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. I want to start, uh, Mr. Lenick, on the cyber issue. My understanding is that there are two bureaus in state, uh, at state, that have uh, responsibility for uh, cyber and IT security, the information resource management uh, and diplomatic security, and both have responsibility. Um, talk to me a little bit about the stovepiping issue of having two different branches responsible for this, um, the degree of duplication or gaps uh, the degree of current coordination and recommendations that you might have uh, with respect to making state more effective in this area. We were all aware of the um, stories about uh, foreign intrusion into states, the state networks in March of 2015, and talk a little bit about how you are trying to tackle that challenge. Uh, thank you, Ranking Member Kane. Um, <clears throat> the um, the, the issue of, of um, dispersion of authority between DS and IRM um, is, is, a, is a serious issue. Um, I, and as I uh, just testified, we've seen a number of uh, significant recurring deficiencies in their IT system over the last five years. We think a number of them are created by a lot, lack of coordination. So let me give you a specific example. Mm -hmm. um, one of the issues we've seen is uh, employees who don't use their email accounts for a period of 90 days, those accounts are supposed to be disabled because hackers can get in or anybody can get in and use those emails uh, for nefarious purposes. Um, the department hasn't disabled many of those accounts and that's a coordination issue. Mm -hmm. um, and we've seen other deficiencies occur as a result of this coordination issue and it goes to um, a larger recommendation which we've made to the department, which is 
Um, the CIO who works for IRM um, currently reports to the Undersecretary for Management, and so does DS. We don't believe that the CIO is properly positioned to control IT uh, security at the department. Mm -hmm. It's not clear that the CIO gets information about security risks from other bureaus. Um, and we've asked the department to take a look at that. The other thing is um, the CIO, one of our key recommendations to address the, the deficiencies we found in their IT system has to do with the fact while the department's working on it, they don't, they have not implemented an IT uh, risk management structure which identifies risk, assesses risk, monitors risk, and so forth. And the CIO has got to do that. I know they've been working on it, but we believe that's key in order for the department to get its, get a, get its hands around this, this problem. Mm -hmm. So with that kind of risk management system, the department would be able to figure out where it currently stands from an IT perspective, where it needs to be, what the opportunities for improvement are, and how to communicate the risks to the department. You, you, you know, kind of give me two different examples, and in the second one, you indicate that there is effort underway at the State Department to kind of grapple with the recommendation you made. How about on the first one, the notion of a CIO being placed differently in the organization to have a more comprehensive oversight of these uh, uh, cybersecurity matters? Well, what's the response that you've gotten from State on that? To talk to it, to explain that to us. Well, our recommendations was that the department consider the positioning of the CIO, and the department's come back and said that um, they've, they've considered the position and he'll remain where he is. That's my understanding of it. However, um, this risk management uh, plan that I've discussed can identify the roles and responsibilities of various, various players and give the CIO the power and authority and the clear guidance that he needs in order to have the kind of control in order to implement you know, an IT system, mm -hmm. a security system. Let me ask about uh, cyber, uh, another aspect of cyber. I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and we spend a lot of time in dealing with DOD about the same issues. Within DOD, DOD there's some interesting uh, uh, projects and programs to deal with cyber issues. There's a program called Hack the Pentagon, which gives incentives to hackers to find and report vulnerabilities uh, in DOD networks. Um, and then the Air Force has something called an IT SWAT team, which is private sector IT professionals uh, that, that have agreed to come in and help the Air Force rapidly uh, if there are intrusions, deal with those. Um, are there similar uh, projects uh, or efforts underway at state uh, to you know, quickly deal with cyber intrusions or even encourage kind of hackers to report vulnerabilities so that they can then be fixed? Yeah, I, I do think, um, I mean, they, they've spent several billion dollars over the last few years on trying to improve the system. I know they've been working hard to do it. I know they've partnered with other agencies to help them, including DHS, uh, to help them detect uh, hackers and so forth. Uh, I know they've provided more tools to staff, um, and they've been working hard at training as well. So I know they've taken a lot of steps. We, we really think a lot of this uh, has to do with just having a better handle on all the risks and being able to see the entire organization and prioritize those risks. The, um, the point that you made uh, on the first two points 
you know, I, now I want to go to State Department folks and say, hey, now you tell us what you are doing in, re in response to these recommendations. And so I appreciate uh, that testimony. Maybe we'll have the opportunity that with State Department folks, especially in the two that you mentioned. I want to ask uh, um, Ms. Calabrese Barr this question. I understand that USAID is rolling out changes to its policy guidance. This, and I see that it's called ADS 201. I don't know what that is, but basically, it's policy guidance about increasing the ability of implementing partners to be adaptive and creative in their execution of aid programs. So much of the great work of USAID is through implementing partners. Um, talk to us a little bit about that effort um, and what guidance would you give to us so we can both support but then also assess the degree to which the relations between a USAID and its implementing partners are as effective as they can be. Senator Kane, thank you for that question. I think it's probably one of the, the more impressed, uh, uh, important questions that could be, could be asked. Um, USAID relies on implementing partners to deliver foreign assistance, right? So right off, of the, right off the bat, you have to have assurance that those implementers have strong internal controls. Um, you have to ensure that they are gonna report, they're gonna monitor, they're gonna check, they're gonna get back to us and know whether the goods the services, the foreign assistance is getting where it needs to go. One thing that we've pointed out time and time again in our work across the board is um, a culture within USAID which use its implementers more as partners. So as a result, um, we're seeing sort of a lack of the kind of rigorous oversight we would like to see from USAID to its implementing partners. And I think the best way to point that out is that you look at our work that our special agents have done mm -hmm. uh, in investigations. That is the effect. That's the effect of those weak internal controls. That's the effect of the vulnerabilities, not really knowing uh, what's being shipped, what's reaching um, the desired entities. And in the case you know, of Syria, uh, in our cross-border operations uh, from Turkey and Jordan, we found um, rings of corruption on, on uh, product substitution, false claims, a whole host of issues. And we have put tremendous, tremendous pressure on USAID as well as its implementing partners to stand up and to have a better grasp um, on that. We stood up a Syria investigations working group where we pull the bilaterals together in that area. We work with state, we work with um, other entities to talk about where we've cracked down on fraud. Who are these partners? Who are the vendors? Who are the implementers? Because much of this money uh, is going to other entities and they may be using the same bad apples. Mm -hmm. So there needs to be that kind of rigor put in place. My point here is, we're doing it as the Office of the Inspector General from our investigation standpoint. We would like to see aid do more of that. Mm -hmm. So the design of the programs, the monitoring, the evaluation, uh, it, it certainly does need to be um, addressed. Particular concern, and I'll just end on this point, is almost half of USAID's money goes through UN agencies. We do not have oversight over those public international organizations that's a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So we have partnered very, very closely with them. In fact, I just got a, a call yesterday from uh, the, the World Food Program, IG, and we're gonna meet um, next week, actually, to talk about what needs to be put in place. 
We've suggested to USAID, you just don't turn over the money. Put conditions on that money, even if it's going to the PIs. Mm -hmm. Half of that money is going to them. You should put strings attached conditions on the transfer of that money. That's beginning to happen. It hasn't happened before. Hence what we see in Syria, hence what we see mm. in Afghanistan, hence what we see in Africa when it comes to global health. I could go on and on. So even though you don't have the ability to you know, exercise your function with respect to monies going to these UN agencies, you can put pressure on USAID to put strings on the money and make sure that they're trying to get the uh, UN-related agencies to up their own internal controls. Absolutely. It goes to the heart of your question. What about monitoring and evaluation? What can they do? They need to look at these implementers, not so much as partners. They have to know what their internal control processes are. They need to know what they know about those vendors and those subcontractors they're going to be working with. What are their internal controls? And they have to put risk mitigation factors in place to account for that. That's risk management. Let, let me ask both of you this question. Both state and USAID work in, in environments that are permissive and also in, in environments that are non-permissive. Um, I, I think I can intuit the answer to this question, but I think it's an important one to get on the record for folks to understand. Talk about how the work of each of these agencies in non-permissive environments, how does being in a non-permissive environment uh, change the, the, the work that an IG's office needs to do? Okay, I'd be happy to start. Um, certainly it makes it more difficult because in a non-permissive environment, that means that you can't be out there. It, the reliance becomes even greater. You're looking to others to go in country for you. That's why these UN agencies are so critical to USAID because those are the ears and the eyes and those are the, that's the footprint, right, on the ground. So the importance of having um, implementers that have our best interests in mind, that are interested in getting the return on every, every taxpayer dollar, you know, as possible. So these issues that we found in our top management challenges, these cut across permissive and non-permissive <coughs> environments. What I would say to this is when you're in a non-permissive environment, um, you can't be there on the front line. One example where I think USA could do better, I mentioned the Syria program, right? So we can't go into Syria. But our UN partners can go in. Uh, OFTA sent out a DART team to, to uh, you know, assess where the need was and make sure the supplies get there. It was our agents, not that DART team, that actually went to the warehouse and looked at what was supposed to go across border to check, is this what it should be? Is it up to the quality it should be? So we asked the question, we're there, why isn't USAID? there. So those are some of the things we're, we're pulling out, we're recommending, we're pushing uh, in our reports. You need to have levels of review. Their multi-tiered uh, monitoring approach, which they have been talking about for many, many years as the end-all be-all for those situations, I think I mentioned here in my opening statement, one of 127 awards mm. use that approach. And what that approach is, we know we can't get in there. So we got to work with the governments. We got to work with our NGOs, right? We got to work with the other implementers. We have to have creative strategies for documenting um, the actual receipt of these goods. We need reports that come back. In Afghanistan, one of 127 awards used it. Our recommendations are targeted at getting that much better 
than that kind of estimate. Mr. Lennox, on the same issue about permissive versus non-permissive environments, then I have one workforce question before I hand it back to the chair. So um, the State Department uh, is, is clearly working in, in uh, providing foreign aid in non-permissive environments, lots of it, uh, you know, in governance programs, non-lethal aid, working in Syria and in Iraq and so forth, and it's a serious limitation, uh, these non-permissive environments to, to monitor um, whether or not the goods or the services are being, you know, delivered um, as, as they should be. Um, the State Department um, has sort of a, a mixed record on this. Um, some bureaus are using uh, alternate means to compensate for that. Use of contract, third-party contractors, use of GPS, use of teleconferencing, talking to grantees in third countries. So there, they can, uh, there's quite a few ways to get around this. And we're actually looking at, at those ways to see how effective they are. In other bureaus, they're not using these methods. And part of it's because there's no um, directive that provides a minimum standard for monitoring and evaluation. So that's something we're looking at. Um, I want to ask a, a, a workforce, one workforce question and then just an observation about workforce. Within the DOD, again from my armed services experience, the senior executive service personnel, senior officers often attend very extensive uh, planning curriculum to focus on things like contract management, et cetera. And my, my observation is that state and USAID foreign service officers usually have um, a shorter rotation with fairly limited training in planning and contract management, even though they're expected to do similar work. So as I compare the kind of training on planning and contract management on the DOD side versus state and USAID side, I think state and USAID don't get the same amount. What can we do to foster more of a planning and training culture within the organizations? Okay, um, this is certainly an issue that we have highlighted. Um, the lack of training uh, for the folks that are actually in charge of determining the programs following from a country development strategy, what the program should be, what the vehicles should be. And I think what we have found sort of across the board is that, uh, number one, the training isn't there that's needed. This is about, this is huge project management. And you know, when you, we talked here about sort of these environments, we might go in, we might start with a $1 million grant. Mm -hmm. That can amp up very, very quickly because of changing situations. And then when you're in a contingency operation with where the need is tremendous and it's great, you have the staff actually overseeing 11 projects um, in that area. If they're not trained, if the right number of folks aren't there, if there isn't uh, alternative strategies for how to monitor it, not a one-size-fits-all approach to this, then you're going to see the effect that we see time and time again. They're not, it feels like a broken record. They're not achieving the goals that they, they sent out. The data is unreliable. Uh, we're not sure they're meeting uh, where they need to be. So training is absolutely at the heart of this. Um, you mentioned foreign service. I think, you know, a, 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 a complicating factor with this because of the nature of that personnel system. Folks are in. They're in for, you know, two years in um, contingency. Um, settings mm. one year and they're out so you you overlay that with the continual change that goes on and I think it is certainly uh, a recipe for uh, tremendous tremendous vulnerability in achieving the program Senator King you raise what I think is one of the most important issues for the new administration to look at 
Um, in the State Department, the, uh, there's little emphasis on project management. They're working on it, and, and, and they've been working on it for a while. But really, people go to the State Department because they want to be diplomats, and they don't want to have to manage contracts and grants and do all these things. Um, it's a collateral duty for, for many. As you mentioned, Foreign Service officers are rotating in and out of these posts one, two, three years. Um, you know, they'll serve as grant officer representatives, and then they move on to another post. So, you know, many grants have one, two, three grant officer representatives. They, they don't have the training, they don't have the staffing. Grant officers and contract officers are really not held accountable for, for oversight. Uh, you've got RSOs, regional security officers, who are also designated as contracting officers at posts who are supposed to be managing the local guard contracts, but also making sure that the posts are secure mm -hmm. from attack. Um, this is a real problem, um, and we've made a number of recommendations to the department to enha enhance accountability. Um, it needs a better uh, system to, um, for, uh, for inventorying contracts and grants. It needs more training, it needs more resources, and it needs to be given the kind of priority uh, that uh, you know, other, other topics do. Because ultimately, in our view, effective management um, means effective diplomacy. And at the end of the day, this should be an organization which is also focused on the taxpayers. Uh, let, me offer, let me just offer one last, not a question, just an observation. And, then, and I appreciate the chair letting me just drone on with 15 <laughs> minutes of questions. And I'm, I'm anxious to hear his questions. When I travel uh, on CODELs, uh, usually I combine travel for armed services and foreign relations purposes. And I've, I've uh, embarked on a habit I really love, which is wherever I am, I go to the embassy and I ask to meet with first and second tour FSOs. Um, and, and often USAID, other folks that are connected with the embassy. And, uh, and I just want to hear what their life is like. And I'm always so uh, impressed with the qualifications of people and their experiences. We, we do, we're doing a better and better job of thanking the military for their service. I don't think we often thank enough non-military um, American employees who were deployed, especially into high-risk settings around the world. But I always ask him this question. Um, you have gotten a job that is very competitive to get. I mean, especially anybody who's passed the Foreign Service and extremely competitive to get. So you're to be congratulated for that. Tell me what will be the difference between you staying and making this a career and you leaving to do something else. And then I don't, I ask that question and then I just listen for usually about an hour. Um, one of the things I hear a lot in, in the answer to that question, what might be the difference between me staying and going, is, is this, and it kind of is in your wheelhouse as you're making recommendations to state or USAID and kind of seeing how they implement them. Um, I have FSOs tell me, I had to go through such an intense security vetting to get this job. But for me to get a few dollars to go to a conference, you know, I have to fill out things in triplicate like they don't trust me. You know, if they didn't trust me, they never would have, you know, let me get through the intense vetting process. But now for some of the most minor things, and I'm, you know, I'm assuming it's because of a desire to put some fiscal check and avoid fraud and abuse, um, I, I treat, I'm treated like I never passed the security vet to begin with. And I hear that frustration a lot, and obviously we have to have a balance in terms of, of, of putting mechanisms in place to appropriately manage and protect the taxpayer dollar at the same time. When we put people through the, you know, one of the most intense vettings that anybody gets in our operation, then there ought to be a degree of respect and trust that 
comes with that. So I just wanted to, you don't need to comment, but I just wanted to tell you that's something that I hear as I travel around the world and try to say thank you to the people doing these important jobs and just might want to consider that. And I will now hand it back to the chair. Thank you. You know, I can relate to that when I'm going through security at the airport myself. <laughs> um, thank you for those uh, insightful uh, questions. You know, let me, let me follow up on uh, that line of, of thought. You know, one of the, the great things about this job is we do get to travel and we do get to see our men and women in uniform and our state uh, personnel around the world. And it really is uh, an unbelievable thing to realize that the best of America is in uniform in our military, and the, and the best of America is in our embassy and diplomatic efforts around the world. I mean, it really is a very encouraging realization to come to as a new member. And I'm worried about uh, the continued safety uh, and, and their careers. You know, I, I think Senator Kane just talked about that. I mean, we, we talk about that in here a lot. Uh, the retention of really good people in any, any enterprise is a key success factor, and I'm worried about their their safety, uh, Mr. Linick, and I know you've talked about that before. And when I look at you, your report, both your reports are so insightful, and, and if we could just implement everything in your reports, we'd all be much better off. But I'm a little concerned that, that when I see uh, repeat recommendations, um, and, and there are a number in here, and the one that really bothers me is the one, and, and it doesn't bother me, but it, I, I want to call it out and get you to, to speak to it very quickly, but I just want to call out in your testimony here. This is about... Uh, embassy security, um, you, know, you know, historical occurrences have proven that, that these embassies are indeed in danger um, at times, and so we have to take this very seriously for the security of our people. But in your testimony, you stated that until the department fully implements the IG's recommendations intended to improve the process to request and prioritize physical security needs, it will be unable to identify and address all physical security-related deficiencies, quote. And then... Quote, without taking such steps, the department will be unable to make informed funding decisions. We had a meeting here earlier this year talking about um, how expensive it is to build the embassies and, and the overruns and so forth. That's not what I'm, I'm looking for here. What I'm really looking for is what are the, what are the hindrances uh, going on in state and, and why is this a repeat recommendation? And, and looking forward to the next uh, year, uh, how receptive has state uh, been to your recommendations, and, and how would you advise us to, to continue to look at that? If, sa if safety of our diplomatic corps is one of the top priorities, um, it seems to me that we need to make sure that these recommendations are taken seriously. Um, Senator, I, I think the issue of, um, you know, why do, the, why do deficiencies continue to appear? It's a complex question. It's, a, it, you know, there are posts all over the world. There's lots of ground to cover. The world is a dangerous place. Um, and there's probably lots of reasons why we continue to find issues. One thing we think would be a simple fix and would contribute to the department's ability to, to address these issues is just having a database of all the needs, the security needs, the deficiencies around the world so the department knows how much money it needs to spend, where the highest priority security issues are, and so forth. The department has made progress we made this recommendation in 2014. They have a database. They haven't populated the database. They just, they need to do that. But it's been a couple of years. Um, so again, it's a planning function. Um, you, you don't know what you have, you know, unless you understand what the universe of needs are. The other thing I would say is, and this is another issue I think the new administration ought to look at, which relates to the issue of dispersion of authority in the IT context. Um, it's the issue of 
we really need to enhance our mechanisms for accountability, particularly in the security area. Um, the Benghazi Accountability Review Board, one of the key recommendations, there's two key recommendations. Um, well, one had to do with making sure that risk management is conducted at the highest levels of the department. And that's very important for the new administration to undertake, particularly where we're sending folks in harm's way and we can't mitigate risk. It ought to be done at the highest levels. The other issue is um, in terms of security. You know, we've had 12 accountability review boards from Dar es Salaam to Benghazi. And in Benghazi, we found that 40% of the recommendations made by the Benghazi Accountability Review Board were repeat recommendations, training, information sharing, et cetera. Why is that? Largely because it didn't have, it didn't have leadership pushing down those recommendations with changes of administrations. You know, a lot of these get delegated to the bureaus. That needs to be implemented from, uh, from the top as well. And they have actually put something in the FAM to require that the deputy secretary make sure that they oversee the implementation of those recommendations. Um, those, are, those are sort of the primary reasons. We continue to find efficiencies all over the world, um, whether it's, you know, not having the right setback or not having uh, hardened doors, et cetera. But I think those are the big, the big sort of root causes is, you know, the real leadership needs to be on top of this. So I notice in London and Singapore, too, that I, I noticed Pakistan uh, and Islamabad as well, some of those recommendations have been incorporated into uh, new construction, uh, setback rules, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, is that correct in terms of these priority um, um, embassies? Yes. I mean, the, the, the department, after the Benghazi Accountability Board, the department has implemented many of those recommendations and has improved security um, at, at posts all over the world, sending more marine security guards, enhancing training. Uh, th they've done that. Um, so the answer is yes, they've, they've progressed. Yeah, we, we visited, we had the privilege of visiting uh, in Marone, Spain, a marine contingent whose one of their primary missions is to uh, be there as the first call for embassies in Africa. And I know Senator Kane has a son, a young Marine, that uh, is out there in harm's way, too. So we want to make sure those guys are well-funded. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Calvary-Zibar, you noted in your testimony, uh, this is a specific question, but uh, you, you called it out, that you're seeking to align the, the USAID IG system of pay for foreign service investigators with that of the rest of the, of the federal law enforcement community. Um, to, just to create a level playing field, can you, can you speak to that just a minute about the deficiency and what we need to think about here in Congress to help get that uh, rectified? Thank you, Senator, for you very much for, the, for that question. I think uh, of the many challenges I confronted when I took over SIG, this is probably the one that has been uh, one of the more disruptive to my organization internally. Um, has it affected, excuse me, Senator, has it affected uh, retention since you've been there in the last year? Um, it will if we don't have effect, if, if we don't have a fix soon. So let me try to uh, take a very complicated uh, issue and, and, and make this simple. Um, I oversee two personnel systems. One is civil service, one is foreign service. When it comes to our criminal investigators, on the civil service side of the house, our criminal investigators get a law enforcement availability pay, known as LEAP, and it allows them to receive 25% more over their base salary up to a GS-15 step 10. And what that pay is for is to ask them to work for a minimum of 50 hours and be available anytime going forward. For commissioned foreign service officers, LEAP does not exist. So my predecessor, 
predecessors, many before me, uh, in, in uh, wanting to bring parity to the system, instituted special differential. So the special differential was instituted to essentially bring the salaries uh, about the same because these are the Foreign Service criminal investigators that are in Syria, are in Afghanistan, right. are in these places, and certainly they should at least be entitled to the mm -hmm. same pay, not only within my organization, but across government, mm -hmm. right? Like, so they put a special differential in place for them. What they also did, though, is they put a cap on that differential. Recently, there was a challenge to the IG's ability to put a cap on that special differential. We're seeking legislation that would allow us to set the, the pay rate similar to the rate of the civil service because if I don't, uh, every imaginable scenario will directly affect what you asked me, recruitment and, and retention or disparity. If I don't put a cap on those salaries, those criminal investigators will receive $40,000 more than their counterparts, in excess of $200,000 a year you know, in their salary. Mm. If I take it away, wow. they're gonna fall way below that. I'm not gonna be able to retain or recruit. Folks at that level, at the FSM one are, level, are special agents in charge. They run the operations regionally. This has been one of the more difficult things that I've had to really deal with uh, in our organization. So we appreciate, we've worked very closely with your staff and other committees' staff uh, to get a legislative fix to this so that we can just bring parity um, in, in, into the mix. And um, it, w it would go a long way. Well, we're, we're working with you. We really hope that, that we can create that level playing field. This is something that's obvious to those of us who, who see it from the outside. Thank Let me you. ask both of, you, both of you this. I mean, this is something that we see. Um, we have a new president coming in in, in uh, January who has um, outside business interests and so forth. So the conflict of interest issue is now front and center um, at the highest level. And so inside um, State Department, USAID, you know, in, as, as in all of government, but I want to talk specifically here, where, where someone might moonlight with a second job, um, what are the procedures going forward that we need to look at to uh, ensure that there's no conflict of interest with their day job? Well, Senator, there are um, ethics rules and, and criminal rules which prohibit conflicts of interest, financial conflict of interest in particular. And, you know, we, 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 we get allegations uh, and in the investigations area of conflicts of interest, so we, we get them routinely and they're pretty, they're pretty common. Is there training, uh, are there training processes inside both institutions to, uh, to educate people? Well, there, I mean, there, there is required ethics training, um, and we did work, um, we looked at the department's ethics, um, eth you know, how they, how they conducted sort of ethics training, and I'd have to get back to you for specifics about that. And we have it within our own office, but, you know, we take it very seriously. So this is something that we, we deal with more on sort of an allegation by allegation, um, uh, space. But from a proactive standpoint, are, are there things that the IG uh, department does uh, interacting with people? Uh, Ms. Calvary-Zibar, do you want to speak to that? Yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to, and I agree completely with uh, what Mr. Linick um, um, said here about the rules and the regulations and there's ethics training, you know, across the board. 
one thing that our Office of Investigation stood up, what I find to be extremely helpful, is put together sort of an, an integrity working group within USAID. So we have USAID's general counsel, we have people from civil rights there, we have people from the management bureau there, we have people from security there, and we're there. And we talk about employee integrity matters. Um, this being obviously conflicts of interest, one of them. I can tell you uh, that we are not um, uh, certainly uh, missing in terms of getting uh, requests for us to do investigations. So I think one, it's, it's a best practice to set something like that up, make it clear that this all needs to come to the Office of the Inspector General. So these meetings that we have on a monthly basis, all those matters are discussed. One thing I will say very, very strongly about USAID on this matter, they refer those things to us, the most egregious ones. We talk about all of them, and they let us have at them. So I think that this is actually, I, I think this is a best practice. It's a good model. And again, I'm very proud of my staff for coming up with the idea that we've got to pull this together and we pull the right stakeholders together to have discussions such as this. Thank you. Mr. Lee, uh, I want to go to the IT area. You, you, this was a top topic last year. And um, it, it seems to be a strong part of your uh, report again this year. Um, you brought to light some serious issues uh, that the State Department and the IG faces uh, preventing your office from, from being as effective as, as you would like. Uh, can you provide an update on the issue of independence of the State Department and OIG and the integrity of those investigations? And what about the independence of your IT network? I know we talked about that uh, last year as well. Well, fortunately, um we, uh, we have migrated to our own independent network. And last year when I testified, I expressed concern um, about the integrity of the information on our network, uh, investigative information, audit information, grand jury information, um, and um, access to that information um, by folks. Um, so we, we, we have no evidence that the department, just to clarify, actually has access to that. The problem is we didn't have firewalls and controls between our agencies to prevent that. Um, so we have moved to our own independent IT system and our work now is, is secure. Well, that's great news. Um, I know Senator Kane has to leave and we, we thank you so much uh, for, for being with us. Uh, Ms. Cavarese Barr, you had mentioned, uh, or can I get you to comment on the same thing? You've only been there a year. Have you seen sort of the, uh, the same, uh, or what, what are your comments on, on the, the IT function inside uh, USAID? Yeah, so first I would just start, start off from an independent standpoint. One of the first things I did within the first month was establish a, a memorandum of understanding about the IG's um, authorities and independence and the need for that. That uh, administrator, Gail Smith, set out to all uh, folks within USAID, and that has gone a long way to uh, stress um, the role, the responsibility, and the authorities we have, and that has played out extraordinarily well. With regard to IT systems, um, we do uh, maintain our own um, servers, but there are uh, certainly opportunities if there's somebody uh, nefarious within USAID proper that would want to try to hack in, whether it be through email accounts or other things, those walls and those structures aren't as effectively built. 
We, um, w some of the new leadership I talked about uh, that I've brought in, one uh, individual in particular, very, very strong uh, in our Office of Management, along with our great staff of, uh, our Director of IT and, and her staff as well, is working on ways to build in more security to those systems. But we do have our own servers. I think we need to go a little bit a little bit further because um, I wouldn't be truthful if I was sitting here and say that it's completely foolproof and nobody can get into these systems. We have work to do in that in that regard. I th excuse me, I think that's fair. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Mr. Lenick, uh, in your testimony you stated that your office was, um, <coughs> you may have given me this thing, I hope not. <laughs> I hope kidding. not. I'm kidding. Uh, I'm actually on the, on, the on the downside of the same thing. Um, <clears throat> I am concerned about uh, the absence of mitigating action plans for high-risk areas concerning oversight of contractor operations. Um, that's an issue your office has raised before. Uh, you've said repeatedly and have issues and uh, issued four reports in the last two years identifying these problems. Give us an update, if you will, uh, of how state has gone about implementing your recommendations. Are you satisfied with the progress of those recommendations? And I know you talked about last year that they had made uh, dramatic progress. Give us an update through this year. And also, uh, you've made recommendations repeatedly. Um, some of those come back, and so this again speaks to the repeat, um, repeat the, the fact that the, the issue shows up uh, uh, again this year. Can you just speak to that uh, again, please? Well, we, um, we do make a lot of recommendations, and some of them are implemented, and others aren't implemented. And we try uh, very hard to follow up and follow through um, uh, with, with in, in terms of compliance once we issue a recommendation. Um, in some instances, if it's a serious recommendation or if we're not seeing compliance, we will actually go back out and do a compliance follow-up review. It's a whole new team that goes out to check to see whether or not recommendations are accepted, or, you know, are, are complied with and so forth. Um, we don't have the ability to require the department to follow our recommendations. All we can do is make recommendations um, and, and hope they implement them. The one thing that's really been helpful for us, though, we've made a number of recommendations that Congress has actually latched onto and incorporated in legislation. So, for example, our, our recommendations and some of our management alerts are in our contracting. Um, the department is required through legislation to report to Congress on its implementation of those recommendations. Some of the most critical recommendations in the contracting area, uh, including setting up an invent, you know, basic stuff like setting up a, a inventory for contracts and grants, holding contractors uh, uh, and, uh, excuse me, contracting officers, contracting officers representatives accountable, things like that. So that's the most helpful way that, you know, we can ensure that the department follows up on our recommendations. But the bottom line, it's kind of a mixed bag and um, we try to identify the most significant recommendations uh, and bring them to the attention uh, of the, to the department. Well, going down the contractor um, issue that you raised, Ms. Calvary-Zibar, um, you noted in your testimony that contract design flaws led to complications uh, in Haiti in the implementation of an $88 million grant. It's $88 million, but mm -hmm. the size of that, uh, uh, it was, I think it was an annual aerial program, if I'm not mistaken, of about 12, $12 million was in question. Can you speak to that and then what you've done to prioritize, um, you know, controls around that to avoid those in the future? 
Yeah, so, so design is absolutely cr crucial to get it right. That's the foundation for any sort of development assistance um, going right. And I think what we're finding is uh, within uh, USAID, when they develop their first, their, their country development strategy, from that their programs follow, from that specific projects follow. A number of things have to be looked at. You have to put the best practices in place with regard to delivering aid, whatever that aid is that you're delivering there. Um, your goals have to be reasonable, and they have to be reasonable based on the environment in which you're working in. So um, USAID's emphasis is a lot on local solutions to provide sustainability going forward. Let's invest in those local entities to make sure that the aid sticks so we talk ourselves out of business, we go in and they can keep things working. Um, but you just can't throw money at it and hope that it works. You have to assess capacity. You have to say, do these entities that the money is going to even know what internal controls are? If they don't know what they are, does the money need to go more towards technical assistance to get them amped up to be able to receive this kind of money? So in the examples that we provided time and time again, with that being one, we had um, I, what I would say less than rigorous look at you know, uh, the best practices, an assessment of the, ca of the capacity, a reporting back of what we're getting. Um, one thing that I will say that uh, OPTA has recently done, and we've seen this in Afghanistan, which I think is another uh, best practice, is rather than throwing all of the money out, especially if you have weak monitoring and reporting um, coming back or data that's less than reliable, which we found across the board on our monitoring um, work, how about incremental funding? So it makes the AORs, the CORs, those monitoring say, okay, here's the first tranche. What did we, what did we accomplish? Hey, if we're not getting where, where we need to be, what is it? Did we pick the, the wrong vehicle? Was the cost share arrangements that we hoped we would get back from the government or the un or entities, are they not standing up to their commitment? Mm. And then recalibrate and change to get it right. But we see too often the design on those principles that I mentioned is flawed in the beginning, and that's just going to have ramifications going forward. So that was just but one example of many. Thank you. My last question really has to do with the reforms that you guys have, have both brought to your uh, respective uh, responsibilities. Can you just bring us up quickly on what, what reforms in the past year you've been able to implement? And then... The, the parting question here is, are there other reforms that we need to be a partner with here legislatively? Are there things that, to help improve your oversight capability, are there things that we need to do in changing the law to, uh, to help you? And um, if, you know, I'd like a brief answer here, but if, if you'd like to, to submit an answer in writing to that, um, we would welcome that for the record as well. Mr. Lennox. Okay, so, uh, Senator, to, to answer your first questions in terms of reforms, I would divide it up into two baskets of, of, of reforms. One is internally and externally. Internally, um, our people are our most important asset. We want to make sure that they have the proper work environment, they have the systems and so forth. We've worked hard, and this is uh, something that's continuing to improve management systems, um, the quality assurance of our work, internal controls, workflow, and so forth, uh, making sure that people have adequate space, that the culture in the office is right, and uh, that's just, uh, these are, are things that we've been working on consistently for the last few years. Externally, we're trying to be more effective at what we do. We're trying to aim at the highest risks of the department, trying to be more efficient and effective. So a few things we've done. Um, 
our inspections division now operates on a risk-based system. So we're trying to be very smart about how we inspect, where we inspect. We look at a number of factors, how much money a post has, the complexity, the size, and so forth. And we might have different kinds of inspections depending on the risk factor. We might send bigger teams to higher risk places, smaller teams to lower risk places. We may look at one function like security or we may look at all of the functions. We may look at just morale and leadership. So those are the kinds of things. In addition, we created the Evaluation and Special Projects Unit to be sort of a rapid response unit to handle whistleblower claims, uh, administrative misconduct, uh, and other special assignments our management alerts and management assistance reports to get information to the highest levels of the department quickly about urgent issues or systemic issues. Uh, and data, analy data analytics is something we're really trying to use um, in an integrated way throughout OIG. I remember, Senator Perdue, you asked me uh, during my confirmation <coughs> hearing, you know, what was I going to do to get my arms around the organization and move it forward? So let me come back to that. I mentioned three things work process and people, and it's something I've lived by in every leadership uh, position that I've been through. So on the work front, we have done tremendous, tremendous work in the past, but what we've done is we've targeted individual programs across all the countries that we're in, and we had that structure that had 11 offices, and I can tell you it was like having 11 different IG offices. Transform that into four uh, regional hubs. Our work now is going to be more cross-cutting. In addition to my oversight responsibility for USAID, I have those additional other entities that I oversee. So work that we can do that is cross-cutting, work that we can do that follows, as Mr. Linux said, high-priority areas of the Hill, high-priorities areas within uh, the entities <coughs> that we're overseeing, high-priorities from work that we've identified, we've got to hit those things where there are big programs. So for example, if we do an audit of Power Africa, Power Africa is getting at USAID's investment, it's getting at MCC's, it's getting at OPICS, it's getting at ADF. We have to do that. So the recommendations in our reports then that I can bring forward talk about systemic issues and lends itself to the kind of oversight hearings you could have with those officials about what their responsibility is to get this right. So work, work clearly, you know, is number one. Processes, just very quickly, uh, we needed to bring ourselves uh, up, to, up to date with the best practices for how we do things within audit, uh, things within investigations, new prioritizations, new audit planning um, guides, uh, new templates and guidance so that we're providing um, um, streamlined efforts so that our reports to you are, are as, as timely as they can be. Because if they're not timely, they're not relevant and you can't use them. So I, I, would, highlight, I would highlight that. Um, I've established an Office of uh, Quality Assurance and Review that didn't exist before. I'm hiring a business process engineer to totally rebaseline our, our processes and bring some best practices uh, into it communications officer, training director, none of that was in our office before, and that speaks to the people part of it. Uh, we have tremendous people at this agency that have been with my office for a very, very long time. Um, as I said, I have a pretty high standard on expectations, and I'd like to think I hold myself to those as well, and I set those standards, and I uh, had the opportunity to bring in a um, fairly new bench of senior executive leaders uh, along with all the existing leaders that have really proven already that they have the chops to get this done the way I want it done with leadership, engagement, co coaching, and inclusivity, and we're investing in our, in our folks to do that. 
finally, um, I just on the, the, the notion of what else we can do going forward, thank you very much for the question on uh, the pay issue. Mm -hmm. That is first and foremost. Mm -hmm. uh, on LEAP is one. A separate issue for me has to do with uh, our, our, our authority with regard to OPIC, oversight of OPIC. Foreign Assistance Act only gave limited authority, doesn't allow us to do financial statements. In short, every the appropriations bill says, you know, USAID, OIG, coordinate with OPIC's president and board and, and come up with a an MOU on the work that you're going to do. So when I think about an IG's role, and I've been in this business for 32 years now, um, the fact that I have to negotiate uh, what my oversight is going to be, and then I have to get it locked and loaded, <laughs> and if there's another issue that comes up that I want to look at, oops, it wasn't in the plan that was agreed to the MOU, it's not working for me. It hasn't worked for the agency for a long time, so I think that that one is most important to me as well. Yeah, I'm concerned about that as well. I see that in your report, uh, and in my business career, that's the one that always jumped off the page at me as well. Okay. Um, very sensitive to that. Thank you both for your testimony, yeah. and thank you for your tireless effort. Um, I know providing oversight and accountability sometimes can be a thankless job, uh, but I want to tell you it's uh, very much appreciated by this subcommittee and the committee at large. Um, you know, I, I, I want you to know your work's really doing, um, it, it really is making a difference. Um, and, and informing us here in the Senate is so important um, that, that we get an objective look at these departments. I mean, these are tremendous departments. We're spending $54 billion all in between state and USAID today, and it's up from $20 billion under the, under the Clinton administration. So under the last two presidents, this thing has really kind of exploded to be a major investment around the world, and yet we see the needs around the world, both from our own uh, internal security of State Department, but also the help that aid is doing around the world today uh, is tremendous. Uh, relative to what we're trying to accomplish from a foreign policy standpoint. So that's why these, these hearings are so important to get this information on the record and see the ball move down the field accordingly. Um, it's through our diplomatic and foreign assistance agency we've been able to bring hope and opportunity to those most in need while also furthering peace and U.S. interest around the world. We cannot forget that oftentimes the, the meal a Syrian child receives or the HIV AIDS medication a mother in Africa receives may be the first and only thing they learn about America. And so we must ensure that the aid we provide is helpful, safe, and accountable, and that our people delivering that are safe. Most importantly, we cannot, help, cannot continue to help others if we do not maintain the trust of those who make this aid possible, the American taxpayer, which is why these hearings are so uh, in, insightful and important to maintain trust and in that accountability. Uh, we'll close now, but uh, the record will open and remain open until Friday, close of business. Uh, for those wishing to uh, submit additional questions, we may have a, a question or two, as we just uh, mentioned. And also, I want to take the uh, privilege here, uh, uh, the, sitting in the chair, I want to thank and make a quick, um, just take a quick moment to thank uh, Major Jim Piracow of the United States Marine Corps, who is here with us today. He happens to be my congressional military fellow for the past year. Uh, Major Piracow has been invaluable in advising me personally and our team about the inner workings of military and national security. Uh, he moves now to the Senate Le Legislative Liaison, but the thing I want to call out about his career, he was uh, a pilot, on, a helicopter pilot for Air Force One, and so he brings a distinguished career to uh, the Senate, and we look forward to working with him over the next year. So, Major, thank you very much. Thank you.
Thank you again for your, your work and your testimony. This meeting stands adjourned.